You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 033, with Luke Van Hoff, founder and CEO of Capital Hedge. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know how valuable your time is, so I appreciate you spending some of it here with me. On today's show, I'm talking to Luke Van Hoff, founder and CEO of Capital Hedge. Luke is truly a veteran trader in the short-term space, starting his first firm back in 1990, where using tick data was not as easy as it is today and where in fact he had to receive all of this information via satellite. After 15 years, he sold part of his firm to Robeco, but at the time the final tranche was about to be sold, he had to buy back all of his IP and founded his current firm. So this episode is full of experiences over the last 25 years from someone who has produced very stable and recurring returns with controlled volatility. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode, on the toptradersonplug.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Luke, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Niels. It's a pleasure being with you here. Great stuff. Now, as I was preparing for our conversation, I noticed a few interesting things that I'm sure we'll have a chance to discuss today, um, but I'll give you some of my initial observations. Okay. So you were, in fact, one of the first short-term traders in the CTA industry uh, as you started trading all the way back in 1990, which is very early considering you had to rely on tick data even then and i believe that was delivered by by satellite so so that was uh, that's certainly an interesting uh, point and the other thing is that you in fact started working for the european commission which is not a typical place to start working for someone who will end up in the alternative investment world but i do believe that this career choice was uh, one of the reasons that you started developing models in the first place as a kind of way to visualize some of the advice that you were giving to your colleagues and convince them of that. Uh, so I'll be interested to hear how that actually happened. And of course, you you sold your company and your trading system at some point in your career, but only to buy it back later. So that's a fascinating twist to the story. Um, and the final observation that I picked up was that to a large extent you have focused on currencies as your investment universe in your short-term trading program, which is a little bit different to many other short-term managers. So I think that's also uh, a really interesting topic. But 
You can hear that I'm excited about all the possible topics we can talk about today. But of course, before we go into all of those details and where you are today, I really would like for you to take us all the way back to the beginning and telling us your story and what led you to take this path in life. And feel free to go back as far as you want, really, Luke. Okay. Well, thank you, Niels. Well, indeed, uh, it's a good idea to start with the beginning. And the beginning was basically when I joined the Treasury of the European Commission, which was in 1985. Mm -hmm. And back then, this European Commission acted as a treasury for all the funds and all the taxes and the levies that basically they were receiving. And they had to be managed and uh, hopefully as, as good as possible, but especially with a very strict focus on risk because they were afraid to lose anything what they invested. Okay. So what happened, this fund grew dramatically. This was the area of the European coal and steel community, the European economic community. So there was a lot of, uh, of action in the European Commission. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there were a lot of funds coming into that gigantic treasury, which at a certain point in time was like over 2 billion uh, euros equivalent. Okay. Sure. Back in those days, it was called ECUs, as oh, you might remember. As I remember, yeah. Okay. So then, uh, together with, with one colleague, I was managing that fund, and we were investing essentially in very low-risk uh, investment vehicles, which were like the treasury bonds, the boons, the GGT, so all these government bond guaranteed instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, at a certain point in time, uh, the person was in charge of the treasury, uh, so the treasurer of the European Commission, he said, well, could we not get a little bit more return out of this <laughs> and still keeping the risk, which, of course, is a very tough thing to do. Sure. Now, the big advantage of working for such an institution is that uh, we had the, the luxury of being provided with an immense amount of ideas and ideas they came from the investment banks. And the reason was pretty straightforward. Being a very important client to them, I think at one point in time we were after the World Bank, the the biggest issuer of uh, of euro bonds mm -hmm. on the on the globe. So we had a lot of contacts with the issuing banks, with lead managers from banking syndicates and so on. And so we got a lot of trading ideas from the the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanleys, the Deutsche banks of this world, but also from Japanese banks, from the French banks, and everyone wanted to do business with us because. Sure. Because of this very big and large treasury, over two billion, we of course were like obliged to write some serious tickets. If we did like a, a five million transaction, it would mean nothing on the portfolio. Sure. So these were very substantial tickets, and as a result, all the banks were eager and keen to do trading with us. So in order to to get our attention, they would. Uh, try to present some of the latest, uh, most innovative trading ideas. And more and more these things turned out to become uh, oriented versus the so-called derivatives world, mm -hmm. which was trying to extract some more value, trying to limit the risks, but still get away with a decent return, slightly above market and so on. So I uh, became more or less uh, interested in, in these uh, ideas, which had to do with swaps, which had to do with uh, options, with futures, so the, the typical derivative instruments of those days. Mm -hmm. And of course, when my colleagues and, uh, and people I had to report to said, well, why should we do that? And why do you think it's a good idea? Of course, it is important that you can 
clearly demonstrate and clarify why this idea of doing a certain trade makes a lot of sense. So what you have to do in order to convince people in the, I'm talking about the trading world, sure. if someone says, well, I'm interested in that trading idea, but how do I know if this works? How do I know if this is indeed a very good risk-adjusted return proposition? Well, then, of course, you have to deliver some kind of proof and actually demonstrate that this is like the good way to go. Mm. And that is how you can determine the maximum amount of risk and so on. So it basically turns down or boils down to you have to provide them with substantial research that actually can help in convincing them that this is the way to go and this is the way you need to treat these kind of investment uh, puzzles. Do you remember what kind of ideas that you had back then and also how how you would go about testing them? Because obviously you didn't have the same technology as we have today. Exactly. So it was uh, in those days mostly a question of trying to quantify it, put it into a model type spreadsheet where you say, well, let's do a scenario analysis. If this and this happens, what could go wrong? What would we end up with? So this is more like options with different outcomes where we say, well, if you do this transaction and we sell, for example, an option on this bond, what could happen? Well, we could be called away. Well, we will be receiving some premium. What is this going to do compared to doing nothing and just keeping the bonds in the portfolio as we are currently doing? So basically trying to convince them that it is a way of shifting the return and risk equation slightly away from the traditional buy and hold. And what would be the advantage of doing that? And, and if I may interrupt you here and just ask, sure. where had you learned about options? Where did that come from? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, actually, options, I learned it at university. I took some uh, econometrics classes in statistics. Mm -hmm. And one of my professors at Brussels University was quite uh, interested in derivative instruments, so futures, swaps, uh, options. Mm -hmm. And back in those days in Europe, the options markets were not that developed yet, with one big exception, the European Options Exchange, which was in Amsterdam. Ah, okay. And so they were very keen in uh, in doing different things with, uh, with portfolios, where they would employ options either to leverage certain positions or to, of course, limit the risks. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I learned. And uh, I followed a couple of courses, read some books, <laughs> and um, that's how my interest got peaked. So I think it's also a nice way to combine the... The, the pure economics, the financial side, with the more quantitative mathematical or statistical combination. Mm -hmm. So you end up with something which is pretty neatly described, where you can say, well, if you do this, if you do that, we can have a pretty accurate idea of what can go wrong and what we can expect to make. And that's where options, of course, fit in uh, perfectly. Sure, sure. And it's actually... That's in that period of time that I started to learn more about it. The options market was still relatively underdeveloped, I should say. Uh, as you remember, only in, in the early 70s, they started with the CBOE, they right. started with black schools came out. So it's like 10, 15 years after the very start. Mm -hmm. So options was something very new and by some people, as it was not very known, it was considered like, well, this is maybe a dangerous animal, let's stay away from it. And um, 
that's one more reason, of course, to do a lot of research to find out what are the potential hiccups if you start trading such a, an instrument. And what did your colleagues feel once you presented that kind of evidence? Were they sort of uh, jumping up or down even at that time saying, this is great, Luke, let's, let's do it? Or were they <laughs> a bit skeptical? No, no because uh, it was rather the skeptical uh, approach first when they said, well, how can we be sure? Are there no errors in the spreadsheet? How do we know they are going to deliver uh, on the contract if we sell out these options and we receive the premium, but what will happen if this and if that? So they were in the beginning a little bit skeptical, and then we decided to give it a try with a small portion of the portfolio. Mm. And as we saw gradually that this was working out well, we did more and more of these uh, trades. And it was basically, I say basically, but it was, in, in the realm of, of selling out of the money options, essentially. Yes, exactly. So the equivalent of what we call nowadays covered call writing, uh, married put uh, uh, combination. So you have some an underlying instrument. Let's assume you have the bond, then you buy a put to protect the, the price from falling, or you have the bond and you sell some call options against it to get some more income. Sure, fantastic. So the very basic uh, option trading strategies in those days. So you did that for a period of time, but what led you to then start thinking about, hmm, maybe I should do this on my own? Well, actually, uh, a pretty uh, remarkable uh, thing happened. One of the banks that I was working with, which was Bankers Trust, so we basically divided our attention between two groups of banks, mm -hmm. the European banks and the non-European banks. So it was mainly dealing with the non-European banks, so the, the people from uh, the US and from the Far East. So it was mainly Japanese banks and brokerage houses on the one hand, and the other side was the US investment banks, say the Morgan Stanleys and Goldman Sachs and Bankers Trust uh, of this world. Mm -hmm. So one of these bankers, I, I got to know pretty, pretty well, and they said, well, you should come and work for us, and we are starting off, off with this new equity derivatives team in London, and I think this could be really something you could like, or you will probably enjoy working in. And so I took the jump and okay. started working for Bankers Trust in London. Right. So I left the European Commission in, uh, in 1988, it was, and... Uh, a couple of years later, joined Morgan Stanley, where I acted or worked as a prop trader okay. in the S&P Futures and Options, uh, on, on the S&P Futures and Options book. Okay, fantastic. And so Bankers Trust was really uh, quite a, a known name in those days, I think, together with the other uh, O'Connor, they were like the two leading derivatives players. So, and it turned out that for all the over-the-counter, it was all over-the-counter uh, options that were being traded. It was mainly O'Connor and Bankers Trust that were like the ultimate, like the lender of last resort, so to speak. But the other banks, the the, the Goldmans, the Morgan Stanleys, the the Credit Suisses came actually to Bankers Trust and O'Connor. So we had a pretty decent book and we could come up with new trading strategies and present them uh, to the competition. Yeah. How long did you stay with them before you... Uh, for a couple of years, like in the, early, in the early 90s, I then set up my company, AIM, which was called Analytic Investment Management, mm -hmm. which was doing very similar things as what I had been doing earlier at Morgan Stanley and Bankers Trust, which was actually developing trading systems using derivatives. And of course, that's where my interest in short-term trading started to develop. So the option side obviously continued. Um, the short-term trading, was that uh, sort of directional short-term models that you were 
sort of thinking out at that time or well actually the two because uh, the short-term trading uh, was actually one of my my main interests so it had become one of my main interests of research for the simple reason that i found out that okay if i want to test something out if a certain strategy or or approach works i should try to see how it has done in the past let's mm. look at the last couple of weeks the last couple of months and if i had a trading system which would only trade now and then, let's say 10, 12, 15 times a year, mm. I would have to go back in time quite a long period. So I wouldn't be able to collect a lot of data to validate if the, the assumption that this trading program is, is a good one uh, would be good or bad. So I ended up trying to shorten the time frame and actually improve and increase the number of trades that were generated by the trading system so that I could have a better idea, a better feel for, okay, how does this trading approach, this method works if we test it out and we see hundreds, if not thousands of trades over the last so many years. Mm. And then, of course, it becomes obvious that as soon as you have a very big sample, a very big data set of trades that you have done in the past and that you have backtested at that point in the past, you can see, well, these are the weak points of the strategy. Here we go in a different market environment, and that is obviously where this uh, strategy has a good time or flourishes, and this is like a more difficult environment for this trading approach. So we can get a better idea of what works and especially when it doesn't work sure. and for what reason it doesn't work. Sure, sure. Tell me a little bit about AIM. How did that evolve? I mean, this is early days to a certain extent. I mean, in 1990, there was probably less than $10 billion in the CTA industry. How did, yeah, how, did, how did you build your business? And well, actually, I started off in 1990 with AIM and there were a couple of clients, actually four or five clients from Europe that I knew uh, from my days at Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. I went to see them and, and gave presentations to them on derivatives trading and they said, well, we would like to to be one of the early investors in your in your new uh, venture mm -hmm. in AIM and uh, that's actually how it started so they gave me some money and we started I think with 20 million US dollar which was not a lot of uh, a lot of money to start with but uh, we had a very uh, intriguing deal which was that we wouldn't charge any management fees at all and we would only charge a performance fee to the extent we made more than 8% per year annualized. Wow. So it was quite a tough challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, we can't really lose that much. Sure. If it doesn't perform, well, we haven't paid any fees. Of course, we risk losing money on the capital invested. Sure. But uh, as they knew, I was pretty risk averse. I was not going to gamble. Yeah. So uh, this was these were the days, basically, that uh, option trading was still in its relatively early days. And if you knew something, I should say, about how to construct uh, combinations of options, you could do the first type of volatility trading, mm. which was uh, very, very much unknown back then. Yeah. And so this was a great period to combine the futures trading on S&Ps. I was mainly trading S&Ps. Sure. And on the option side, in, in those years, it was mainly the OEX more than the SPX, which was the, the biggest contract traded. Okay, so no currencies at this time? Or? No, at that point in time, I didn't do any currencies. Okay. I was trading a couple of currency futures, but not uh, 
over the counter, the spot for an exchange sure, sure. that only started in, the, in 1995. Okay. And the reason why is actually quite interesting. One of the clients who, who started from the very first day with me, he said, well, this is a very solid strategy as I see it and, and as you have been able to demonstrate over the, over the last couple of months. But I more or less predict, he said, that you will run into problems as soon as the assets on the management starts to grow. <laughs> And it was very true. When sure. I was trading 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, it was all, all rosy. But then as soon as the, the trade size became a little bit more significant, mm. and of course, there was no electronic trading. So I was on the floor or talking to the people on the floor for many hours a day sure. Sure. And, and, and phoning these orders in and day trading S&P uh, futures and day trading OEX options. So mm. it was physically relatively tough yeah and you you started to notice that as soon as the orders became bigger it became harder for the brokers on the floor to fill you at decent prices so the slippage became an increasing amount was eating away at the pro the profits of these trades and uh, indeed this client was very right and he said well you should really start looking at a different market where slippage is not going to become such an issue once you start to trade bigger size. And that's, of course, the Forex market. Sure. Now, I didn't know a lot about the Forex market. I traded some, uh, some currency futures and, and some currency options, but nothing on the, on the interbank market, which was a totally different world. Mm. And uh, it was a very much uh, a world very much of being informed, knowing where the flows are, where the stops are, what, uh, what big tickets were being uh, uh, basically shuffled at what prices. So it was really getting some market insight, which was really, I should say, concentrated at a very big bank. So as an outside trader, I think it's a pretty difficult thing to do to just do some longer term uh, directional trading in the Forex. And so uh, this client said, well, uh, why don't we look into the possibility of converting your current system into a currency system. In other words, let's try and apply the same algorithms, the same program, programs, the same techniques, and see to what extent they would work in terms of uh, trading the dollar against the Deutsche Mark, the dollar against the French franc, the pound sterling against the Deutsche Mark, and the yen against the dollar, these kind of main currencies, which were extremely liquid, comparable to today's liquidity on, say, euro, dollar, and dollar yen. And of course, you would have the big advantage of having never an issue in terms of being able to get in or get out at a very decent price. There would always be a market, and people uh, would would make you a market for five million dollars at all at all times. So it's it's never an issue. And as you didn't trade huge size, it would be a very different story than trading or scalping as in peace and trying to get away with uh, with one hundred lots when the, the daily volume was something like uh, a thousand times bigger. <laughs> so it is, it is a, a much different environment trading the Forex market compared to, of course, the futures bid. Sure. Before we dive into all the details, I want to just finish the, the story of AIM, what happened, uh, you, 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 you got bought up by Rubico and then so on and so forth. So if we can finish that story, then we'll dive okay. into more, uh, to more details uh, as well. Sure. Okay, so when the company uh, continued to, to perform well, uh, I got I I went to to different conferences, do some promoting, do some prospecting, give some presentations, 
And I used to go to a lot of conferences where I was talking about Forex, about volatility trading, about option trading, about derivatives trading in general. And as I was teaching at, uh, at Brussels University at the same time, I got into the habit of being on panels uh, talking about these kind of derivatives. And one of the presentations I gave in London, uh, where a friend of mine actually uh, called me up and said, well, I can't make it. Could you replace me uh, mm -hmm. next week to give a talk about uh, volatility clustering or something? Uh, I went there and uh, and gave a talk. And in the room was one of the guys from Rubico, mm -hmm. uh, then owned by Rabobank in, in the Netherlands. Sure. And the guy came up to me and said, well, I'm uh, one of the researchers of, uh, of Robico, and I'm very intrigued by the story. Would you mind uh, come over and give a presentation at our headquarters in Rotterdam, which is what I did. Sure. And that's actually how the story with Robico started. Okay. And this was in 2005. Mm -hmm. And in August of 2006, uh, we signed a deal where Robico actually had... Uh, First of all, bought 40% of, uh, of the shares of AIM, of my company, mm -hmm. and then at the same time um, uh, got an option to buy the remaining 60% within the next five years. How big was AIM at the time? Well, we managed about 250 million, mm -hmm. so, which was sizable, sure. uh, but not too big. And uh, there is a very good reason uh, that it never got too big. And, and never stayed too small because there is some kind of a sweet spot for the strategies that we trade, which, of course, we could cover later on. But uh, Rubico also was uh, smart enough, I think, to say, well, we're not going to focus on uh, these companies, which are already several billion dollars, because it would be a very expensive price for them to pay, nor would they invest in, in really tiny boutique firms with, say, uh, $3 million on the management you should be able to provide a decent track record. I think they had like a criterion that you have to have at least 10, 10 years of track record, at least 100 million on the management, but not more than, than 500 million or something. So like the good balance of not being a startup uh, derivatives firm, but uh, not having grown to, uh, say, a, a multi-billion company, because then it would be too expensive for them. I'm a bit curious here, just just really sort of to, to take us back to that time. How big did you think, and in your discussions with Rubico, how big did you think AIM could become in terms of capacity? Because I, I, I'm assuming that they buy you because they think you can grow. Absolutely, that's very correct. So that was the main driver. Actually, there, are, there were two main reasons, I think, why they were so keen on, on buying us and, and comparable firms. Sure. Back in those days, they had uh, a department which was called Robico Alternative Investments, called mm -hmm. RAI, R-A-I. And so that uh, department within Robico was interested in, in what they call developing an alpha engine. Mm -hmm. So... They were interested in trying to find small companies and firms that do something very different than what they were doing in their main uh, daily business, which was doing traditional investment management, mm. buying stocks and bonds and, and, and using traditional investment management uh, vehicles. So when they focused on, on the alternatives world, so one of the other companies they acquired a couple of years earlier was Transtrend. Sure. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Absolutely. Um, so they were just uh, 100 kilometers north of us, mm. and I spoke to the people at Transtrend several times. And so they required Transtrend, I think, in 2001, 
and also had an option. No, in, the, in that case, I think it was not an option. They had like a, an agreement to yeah. buy the remaining 51%, exactly, yeah. which I think uh, happened in 2006. I think it was the year when actually we did the trade, or maybe 2007. I could be off by year. But they were looking actually for alternative uh, companies, so people who would deliver some alpha, would deliver something uh, using different instruments, different techniques than the traditional. Mm. And so that was one reason. So it's a diversification reason for them. But then, of course, definitely they will they would buy it only if they think that if they take a stake in that company and ultimately acquire it completely and totally that they can grow the business mm. because they they recognize, of course, the fact that this uh, relatively tiny uh, boutique firm, which has less than, uh, than than 500 million on the management in, in all cases, and in our case, uh, it was like 250, well, with their name behind it, with their support behind it, and their sales and marketing uh, organization behind it, they will probably be able to make it grow uh, significantly. But you sure. But you mentioned that there was a. This is why I was asking before. You mentioned that there was a sweet spot for your strategy and size, and I'm just curious what you thought that sweet spot was at the time. Well, uh, we made various uh, estimates, of course, and the numbers always came back. And actually, what was an even better uh, estimate was the estimates from the clients, because mm. some of the clients were really quite good at uh, comparing. They were in, in like a better spot, in a better position to see what we were doing compared to what other people were doing. Mm. And they could say, well, if these guys continue to do this, they will probably start to run into trouble mm. if they would grow this big. Mm. So... What we got as feedback from the clients and what we thought ourselves was always a number between, say, 250 and maybe 800 million, but capping out definitely at 1 billion mm. with the then current strategies. Right. So obviously the idea was that if we would grow, we would probably hire some more people. We would maybe expand into other areas, uh, maybe into equities, maybe into bonds, uh, something we didn't do instead of just limiting ourselves to mainly forex and uh, futures and options trading. Mm -hmm. But say for the then current portfolio of systems that we were trading, uh, probably we could do it times three, maybe times four. Okay, okay. So that was probably the idea. Exactly. They had a five-year option to buy the rest, but what happened? Well, actually, they had some very significant management changes in 2010 and 2011, and then decided to close down everything which was related to RAI, this Robico Alternative Investment Division. Mm -hmm. So what uh, the, the companies that they had bought before, they actually offered the possibility to to buy the intellectual property back from the original, at, so they offered that to the original owners. Okay. And uh, and basically turned back to their traditional investments. Okay. Some of them uh, were still in the portfolio. I think Transtrend is still in the portfolio because it was a 100% owned since 2006 or 2007. Sure. But most of the other alternative firms, they were actually sold off again. Was it difficult to agree a price to buy it back? It was. It was very difficult. It took <laughs> us about a year. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But so I think it was a good thing for both of us that we then, okay, could focus again on what we wanted to do, which is actually research and trading. Yeah. Because bottom line is we are more a research company than a pure trading firm. Sure. Trading is nearly like a byproduct of what we do in terms of, of research, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so it was a good thing, and it was good working together with them for these five years. Yeah. But then at the same time, when their uh, orientation and objectives changed, so it was uh, also good for us to be able to to go back to the to the original configuration. Right. So you have your own company. You're starting it. What two thousand. 11 thereabouts yes or, yeah. yes exactly exactly so okay. the, the the company that i started in 1990 uh, was then sold to robico 2006 and then bought back so to speak in 2011 sure. and we started all over again okay and the program that you had been running that had evolved back from 1990 is that what is known today as the dpi program uh, not completely because okay. what what we had in the beginning was a more diversified combination of pure futures trading on the one hand and pure options trading on the other side. Okay. So these were two separate programs and both of them were very directional trading. Mm -hmm. Now, when the currencies came along, say, the mid-90s, 1995, 1996, we started focusing more and more on currencies and less and less on option trading. So when Robico came, uh, say, came on, or we came on, we joined uh, forces with Robico in 2006, then it was like 95% currency trading. Mm. While uh, the currency trading was good, and it was mainly a short-term, nearly day trading uh, program, which has evolved over the years. But when we noticed that there was less opportunity in terms of pure day trading, and most of the money could be made in, say, the intra-week time frame, so mm -hmm. holding positions for a couple of days, maybe three days, but not more than a week, and definitely not over a weekend. Sure. <laughs> so then we shifted the attention somewhat and, and got back away from the currencies where there was less volatility than in the uh, stock indices. Mm -hmm. So the DPI program, which was developed in 1995-1998, started off 1998, and currently we are still trading it, although the form is and the shape is slightly modified because it's a continuous process of doing research, but the principles of trying to come up with something which is well diversified mm. are, of course, still valid. Yeah. How much of the assets could you keep or, or when you then started your, your, your current firm? Oh, we started back from scratch. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, that was say, the drawback of that. Yeah. But then again, we had the intellectual property, which we uh, basically required sure. and acquired again. So we, it was a question of uh, prospecting again and showing uh, showing to the world that what we were doing before was very similar to what we were going to do in the near future. Was that a difficult process, look, at the time to raise enough money to start trading again? It was. It was not easy because, uh, okay... Uh, when you're used to trading, say, a certain size, and th there have been days that we have been, in term especially in terms of trading, we have had very big trading days. I remember trading days where we traded over 1 billion in a single day, yeah. which was on the currency markets not huge, but still for us as a sure. relatively small firm, sure. was a significant amount. Now, if you then have to uh, scale back down and say, well, let's do uh, 1 million here and 2 million there, instead of 5 million and 10 million, it yeah. is different. And yeah. it's, it has an impact on the trading as well. So, but then again, uh, we knew a lot of people on the institutional side. We never had uh, a lot of marketing in the, call it the, the private investors world. Sure. So we had a very strict focus on, on large institutional clients. And so the story was, uh, I think, and is still pretty convincing. And, and the returns have been pretty steady. And that is actually what institutional investors prefer most of all, this 
recurrence in the return stream, this steadiness and what we call robustness of the program. Sure. Without naming names, what kind of investors did you get on board to begin with? Who 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 bought into the story and, and sort of the, the, the comeback of, 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 of you as an independent uh, manager? Well, in the very beginning, it was mainly what we call nowadays family offices. So okay. bigger family offices okay. and some pension funds. Wow. So pension funds, which uh, we went to see and told the story and had experience with back in the days from Bankers Trust or Morgan sure, Stanley, sure. and we're familiar with the derivatives trading that I have, I have done there. So they were interested in the concept, and mainly people from Switzerland, where there was a little bit more, uh, should I say, they were more exposed and more advanced in terms of using hedge funds, mm-hmm. using derivatives, compared to, say, the, the uh, average bank in Belgium or in France, mm-hmm. which has less exposure to derivative instruments. I guess, yeah. And, and also, I mean, plus 2011, you know, obviously it hasn't really been an easy time to raise money for CTA strategies in the last few years. So uh, I guess that made it maybe even a bit harder than, than otherwise. It would definitely, there was like not a good environment for CTA strategies to be marketed. But then again, as we were able to differentiate ourselves because we were trading very short term and with very controlled risk, that is something which uh, uh, was very appealing to, to many people. Of course. If yeah. you can really control the risk at all times in, in a very precise fashion, sure. that of course helps. Sure. Now, three years later, where do you stand now? I know you have two programs, but just out of curiosity and for the listeners to benefit, where are you now in the two strategies in terms of AUM? Well, actually, we are around to advising some nearly 200 million US dollars, which is mainly in the DPI program. Kairos is relatively recent. So there is a DPI program, which is the Downside Protection and Income Program. And on the other hand, we have Kairos, which is a a cross-asset class solution where we work mainly with with position sizing algorithms and dynamic risk protection, as it is called. So that has a shorter track record, nearly two years now. But so that is still uh, growing. The reason why we came up with a second program is that we saw that in DPI, it is, and I think we we hinted to that earlier on during our Mm -hmm. talk, that some of these trading strategies, they can work very well, but they are very difficult to scale. Right. So when you ask me what do you think or what did Robico back sure. in those years think in terms of assets under management, well, with those kind of trading strategies, definitely not more than a billion. Yeah. We could maybe trade without too much trouble 500 million, but uh, go twice as big as that would be difficult. Yeah. Now, this new one, the, the Kairos program that I've developed over the last couple of years, is something which has been, uh, that we have been uh, working on for many years, but it is like a very difficult thing to 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 do, and it was especially challenging in terms of taking away some of the constraints. Sure. What we has what uh, and maybe I don't know if it's a good time at this point in time. Well, I'd to like to dive. In, I'd like to dive into the details a little bit later because I want to before sure. we do that, I want to go a completely different place. Now we've done a great introduction uh, about your your history and and uh, sort of what led you to where you are today. Um, but something that most people probably don't know about you is that you're actually one of the fastest re- readers in the world. And <laughs> my research shows you that you're number five or six on the r- world ranking of readers. 
and can read more than 1900 words per minute. Tell me a little bit about that because that uh, is not usual. Well, it's actually quite a funny story. <laughs> and uh, it is something which um, I didn't intend to do. I, I mean, I've always been uh, an avid reader. I started reading, I think, at the age of uh, three or four, so relatively young. Sure. And I've been reading quite a lot. Now, I was reading fast, but uh, I didn't know to what extent some really good techniques could improve that dramatically. Mm. And I think it was in the early 90s, I got in touch with a couple of researchers who were doing something uh, which has to do with the, how the brain works and how we can actually improve the efficiency of our brain. And having read about it, I said, well, this is a, a potentially interesting subject. And this person who was uh, teaching uh, the class and organized the program he was a remarkable person uh, by himself, I think. He was very, by himself, he was really, really very bright. But he also had this incredible memory. And I was really impressed. And I remember one of, the, one of the tricks that he did. It was not really a trick. It was really showing off how good his memory was. So he was, uh, or he is an American person, so he didn't speak any Dutch. And, uh, he, and I visited with him in, in Antwerp. And he said, well, show me a book. And show me a book of which you are sure I have never seen it before. Okay. So we were in this in this uh, library, and I took out a book of uh, Dutch painters. <laughs> I remember and these were like painters of the 17th and 18th century, and there was the picture of the painting could be a Vermeer, could be a Rubens, could be whatever, with a description in Dutch of the painting, what's on it, the title, when it was painted, by whom, and so on, and. Of course, he never saw that he might have seen some of the pictures of the paintings. Sure. That's probably where it ended. So he said, well, you can do a, a little experiment if you want. We had this, this course organized, I think it was over like a five, six, five or six-week uh, uh, period. So every week there was like a new uh, chapter to this uh, training of uh, in-speed reading, as he called it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, well, at the end of today's class, and it was like a, a day-long class, he said, uh, you can take any book, that book or another one, and we'll just go through the pages. So about one second at a time. And said, well, okay, fine. So we did that. So we took the book, one, one second per page. So it was like, I don't know, 200 seconds. We went through the book, closed the book, and put it away. <laughs> and then the next week, we showed him uh, the pictures of the paintings, and he gave the titles and who painted it and what year it was painted and even some of the names. Wow. So it was totally amazing. I said, wow. So it was not only a question of reading fast because you had to absorb the information yeah. in like this one second, but also then, of course, memorize it. Yeah. So and then during that course, we, we, we were trained in, in some techniques to improve the speed of reading. And some people were like, say average or even below average i remember there was a mathematician in the group and she was really slow in reading because she was used to reading these mathematical formulas and mm -hmm. studying them for like minutes before moving to the next page she was really slow in reading well she also more than tripled her speed after this i think it was a six-week class mm -hmm. and in my case it also improved dramatically and said well you we should participate in this uh, in this world contest which i was not very uh, yeah. intrigued about but he, he tried to to talk me into that and, and it was it was a fun experience mm. amazing excellent now 
the first or the next topic I want to talk about is that here we have someone like yourself. You're running a short-term trading program. You've got almost $200 million in the management. Yet I sense you have a very lean organization. So I want to tell you, tell our audience, how do you do that? What do you do in-house? What can you outsource? Let's start with that. I have one more follow-up question, but let's start with that. Okay. Well, I think that's a, a very critical uh, question you're asking mm. here for the simple reason that if I would compare this organization with the organization I had, say, 10, 15 years ago, mm. to do the exact same thing, I would probably have to employ, if not three times, at least twice as many people mm -hmm. because of the technology that has made such progress. Yeah. To give one example, to just put it in perspective, when we were trading options, and I'm talking now about the mid-90s, mm -hmm. maybe early 90s, sure. well, we were trading probably uh, 20 to 50 times a day. We were having some trades on the CBOE, on the OEX, on the S&P futures, and so on. Well, at the end of the day, we would be receiving faxes between 20 and maybe 30 pages of faxes coming in mm. from the States, which would oh. come in like at around 11 o'clock, maybe midnight yeah. our time. Yeah. We had to go through them. We had to verify all the trades, that the positions were correct, that they were in the right accounts and so on. <laughs> and it would take us literally like three, four hours the next day to basically reconcile everything and, and deal with any potential out trades. And it would take us also like two to three hours to do all the calculations necessary to prepare for the next trading day, which fortunately for us started at 3.30 in the afternoon. Right. So we had like a full morning and, and the beginning of the afternoon, which was needed in order to prepare for the next day trading day. Mm. While now, I can run the exact same system in probably, I, I should say, less than an hour, probably three quarters of an hour. Yeah. And that will do everything, make all the calculations, and the calculations have actually uh, evolved to the extent that they have become more complex and, and there, are, there are more difficult uh, items to calculate than they were, say, 15 years ago. Mm. And still with this technology, it's now possible. So now if you have a group of, say, two, three people, and we focus, as we did before, on just two things, and these two things are research on the one hand, and then what we call the byproduct, the trading, which is actually like the implementation of the research. Mm -hmm. Well, we can do that with a couple of people only. Mm -hmm. So if you have two, three people here in, in the office, yeah. it's more than sufficient to be able to do everything we want and make sure that everything is double-checked as it should be. Sure. While before, we would have at least three traders because we have to phone the orders in, we have to adjust the stops, we have to trail the stops, change the size, take profits, and it's always a phone call and double check and get a confirmation and write it down. Well, now it's all electronic. We see it on the screen if a trade is filled or partially filled, at what price there is a perfect audit trail before there was like a middle office, a back office, and the front office. So it was much more... Uh, much more in, in terms of human resources, which was needed to do the exact same thing. Sure. I mean, I think this is, this is critical uh, to some extent because I think for people to understand that someone like yourself running that amount of money can do it 
uh, with a team of, of a total of two to three people um, yet competing, um, and I, I, I may add here because I've seen your track record, certainly competing with the best of the best in the world, uh, that's extraordinary. But my next question I think is really critical. How do you convince institutional investors that two or three people is a big enough team when some of your competitors are maybe 25 people? Mm-hmm. That's indeed a very good question. And I think the way to convince them is to show them. I mean, we are way past the time where hedge funds were telling to people, well, trust me, this is how we do it and you'll see it will be okay. Now we are in the period, and I think since at least five years, it's no longer the trust me philosophy, but the show me philosophy. Mm. So we have to demonstrate them and we have no problem talking really in great detail about how we trade and why we trade what we trade and how we trade what we trade. And it's only by letting people see what we do and how we do it that, of course, they get convinced that there is some value in it. Now, of course, this has to do with the fact that we are extremely focused on very specific trading strategies. So if you say, well, what stock should we buy? Uh, Because I'm a value investor, well, we don't know. What bond should we buy in Europe if I want this kind of modified duration? We don't know. It's not our niche strategy. We are very much focused on volatility trading, using options, risk control, directional trading in the forex, and that's about it. So mm-hmm. it's not like, okay, we have a total, complete, broad program which is using fundamental news, which is using uh, order flow, which is using uh, investor sentiment, all these things which I think require a lot of inputs and activity. I take I take that on board, Luke. I think, I mean, I, I agree with that. Yet, you know, and I think this has an, has an interest uh, to, to a lot of people because uh, there are more small managers than there are big managers, let's put it that way. So this, this is a challenge that, that many people are faced with. And I also take on board the fact that you say, okay, but we'll show them. Still, I would argue that um, a lot of people would shy away from a small team because of the career sure. risk that they may run. It's easier to buy... And we all use, uh, uh, you know, the the, the large managers uh, that we all know as, as, you know, with 100 PhDs and all of these things as as, as the sort of the the benchmark, which obviously is is not uh, entirely fair. So I'm interested in whether you have some... Some, some good tips or advice for, for, for all the other small managers out there that are faced in the same situation you know that you are, except that they don't have $200 million under management maybe. Um, but in, you know with a small team, with a fully systematic track record and, um, and where they are systematic uh, approach and, and a mm-hmm. good track record, how do you think you've been able to convince them? Because just sort of showing them, okay, that's one thing. But I mean, is there anything else you think that, that other people could, could learn from uh, from your experience? Well, I think what is most important in trying to bring the message across is very clearly describing what you do, what are the advantages and what are the risks. Mm. If to a certain extent you can very neatly and precisely describe what they're going to buy if they subscribe to your program, then it's a big step forward. Sure. If you say, well, I'm the best trend follower on the planet, 
Uh, I'm from a small company in uh, in in say Abu Dhabi, and I've uh, I've never uh, given a presentation to a, a pension fund. But I'm definitely one of the best trend followers on the planet because my strategy is so good, no one else comes even close to it. It's a very tough sale. Yeah. If you say, well, I've been doing this for 25 years, this is a track record, this is what I've been doing, these are my credentials, obviously that helps. Mm. But you have to be very open and honest about it. It remains a fact that some pension plans, some pension funds, some large institutions, they will still shy away from from investing in the program because they have some criteria. And we've run into that multiple times where a bank says, well, this is really what we like. I like your strategy. I like uh, what you've told us. Uh, I've seen uh, the track records. Everything is, is nice. However, we are a big company and we never would invest uh, less than $50 million in a program. However, we cannot be more than X percent of your fund, of mm. your program. Mm. So you have this chicken and egg situation. You say, well, uh, I remember one client uh, in particular said, well, we would never invest less than 50 million. It was exactly that number. Sure. However, we cannot have more than 10 percent of a manager right. when we invest with them, which means, of course, you need to have at least 500 million. Sure. If not, it would be more than 10 percent of, sure. of your ass- total assets under management. So he said, well, do you have a bigger fund? No, we don't. So it becomes tough to grow. And then it becomes uh, a question of, of course, you have generic growth, so to speak. But that would take years unless you're compounding at, a, at an incredible <laughs> an incredible return, sure. which very few people can do, especially for a longer uh, time period. Yeah. But then it becomes a question of, okay, um, do you really need these huge uh, assets under management? Do you really want to have 1 billion and frankly in our strategy especially in the dpi program we know that it wouldn't work it would even become self-destructive mm. so it can be a blessing that you have a strategy which which works fairly well and where you are happy with and you know that okay i can easily trade 5 million 10 million 100 million 200 million but probably not 500 million with this strategy so i know the constraints i will try to so call it, optimize it for that kind of number, mm. for that kind of money under management. And I know that I can't become bigger than that because it will have a bad impact sure. because of slippage and so on. So it's one thing to say, be, be happy with the configuration you have. It's another thing to say, well, I want to grow this into a multi-billion business, which is not exactly what we have in mind. Now, the second program that we have would allow the, the program or the assets under management to grow pretty significantly because there are much uh, less constraints in terms of doing this in a bigger in a bigger environment, doing this with more money under management. But the DPI program, which we have been trading for a long time, more than mm. 15 years, well, that one definitely can't be traded on a much bigger scale. And people would argue, they say, well, that's hard to believe you're trading G10 currencies. Mm. These are like the most liquid markets on the planet. True, that's true. But if you try to move, say, 30 million uh, Swiss francs, at this point of the day on a Friday afternoon, it would be virtually impossible unless you're happy with the spread of 10 pips. If you do that, say, on a Tuesday afternoon or a Tuesday morning, the spread could be one or one and a half pips. Mm. So... If you don't know that and you suddenly 
make every Tuesday morning into a Friday afternoon, you're going to create some serious problems. Sure, sure. So you have to be realistic in terms of what strategy can be scalable and to what extent. Yeah. If, you have, if you're a trend follower, uh, then of course you trade some, some very big markets and longer term and you're used to these swings and it's scalable to a very large extent. But in our type of quantitative short-term trading strategies, it's much more difficult to have a very scalable approach. Sure. So it's heavily related to what you do and what markets you're trading. Sure. No, I mean, I think you bring up a, a couple of very interesting points and I would just add one thing to that and that is for for many managers who want to grow their business and they go out and they would talk to investors, um, I think one um, thing that perhaps I would describe as a, a small mistake in their, in, in, in marketing is really that People often say, oh, but my strategy can manage billions. And that may be true. But actually, I don't think that that necessarily in, entice people to invest here and now. I think that might entice them to say, okay, well, if you have so much capacity, we'll wait another year and, you know, we can still be back. Uh, it, rather than say, you know, um, we may be able to manage a few billion in this strategy, but in fact, we're going to stop at 400 million and we're going to see how it is. And you create that kind of scarcity, which Absolutely. is in fact uh, a mental trigger in the mind, which, uh, which, which I think might be a, a better approach. But that's sort of a, a little bit... Um... Well, I fully agree with that. Yeah. Because it's exactly what people uh, tend to make as a mistake and say, well, we have this program which we can grow to, to, uh, to 10 billion. Yeah. But so, so what's, what's the advantage for the investor? Sure. Yeah. If he's late in the game, we could still join in. Yeah. While if you have this very limited capacity, so to speak, and sure. you know there is something valuable, but it's it's only there now and may no longer be there in two years, yeah. you create an additional incentive. Sure. I fully Absolutely. agree. Just one final thing before we jump to the next section. Uh, you mentioned sh that that showing what you do uh, to investors helps you convince them, but I have a feeling that what you do could also often be described as some kind of black box because there are some technicalities, algorithms sure. happening, and so on, and 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 so on and so forth. How do you bridge that gap? One thing is to show them that, okay, we press five buttons and that runs the whole system and this is how we can do this by only being two or three people. But how do you, um, how do you open the Pandora's box enough for them to feel comfortable about what's inside? Okay, that's a very good point. And it actually, at the same time, uh, makes the point of, well, this program is not for everyone. For mm. the simple reason that it's very difficult to explain this, say, to my friends who don't know anything about investment and derivatives. Mm. If they know something about stocks and bonds, that's fine. But if you talk about volatility and volatility risk premia, and how you can arbitrage it, and how you can combine trades, and then make it uh, delta neutral and these kind of things. Well, you see the whites in their eyes, sure. which is which is not the objective. So, it is definitely something which you have to tailor to a certain segment of the market. Mm. So this is a program which we can only offer, and we only want to offer it to institutional clients because if not, we wouldn't be able to explain it without going through, say, a lengthy course, which is not the objective. <laughs> Now, if we uh, explain this to institutional clients they get the message yeah. quite quickly and they say, well, this is something we don't want or this is something we could be interested in. And if you're interested in, like we had a conference call uh, yesterday with a, with a Swiss uh, 
group of investors. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's that's a good point you brought up there. Could you send us some illustrations of some previous trades mm-hmm. and walk us through the mechanics of how you did that? And we have no problem mm-hmm. doing that. Why? Because the markets we trade are, first of all, very big, very yeah, large. Sure. These are trades from the past. They are we don't fear any reverse engineering sure. by showing that. And that helps building the confidence. Mm. So you have to say, well, if we put on these trades, these are the risks. So how mm. do we handle these risks? And you walk them through the example. You go back in time a couple of weeks. We had, of course, the example of 31st of July. when there was this big drop. S&P is selling off about 5%. Sure. And then reversing back 6% up only in like two, three weeks' time. So it was a great time for volatility trading. Now... If you can show the people what you did and what went wrong and what went well, that builds a lot of confidence. Mm, Absolutely. Great stuff. Now, I want to go and talk about the trading program itself and dive into that. But before we do so, I want people, I want you to explain how should people read your track record. And the reason I ask for this is that um, I think... Sometimes people believe that if they look at a track record, this is what they can expect for the future, not realizing that usually these strategies evolve over time. Some of them evolve dramatically over time. So whatever it looked like 15 years ago is nothing what it looks like today. So I think it's always useful for people to understand um, how they should read a track record. And in fact, uh, I've certainly debated with some of my previous guests as to whether or not it's better to look at a backtest of the current configuration to understand what the program is all about rather than looking at a historic uh, track record that shows many iterations of the same model i i I would be delighted to hear your view on that uh, Mm -hmm. as well but i also want to really understand how should we look at the program today and the track record track record itself okay that's a very good question so a lot of people actually, when they look at a track record, they say, well, this is, these are the returns. We saw that kind of return in 2011, that kind of return in 2010. Uh, this was a bad year. This was a good year. Well, we'll probably end up with something like that. And they forget, obviously, that a trader who has been doing the same thing for three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, will obviously evolve Mm. and it could be because he grows slower or he grows smarter or he grows faster or whatever something is changing on the one hand there is a trader who is of course evolving but more importantly in my opinion is the markets are dynamic right so it's not because i created let's suppose an incredible uh, trading strategy on dollar swiss franc which was like our main profit contributor in 2005 that it still works today actually it doesn't because the market has changed. The market is no longer behaving as it was in 2005. Hence, we don't see the same kind of profitable trading opportunities in that specific market. So when you look at the track record, it's extremely difficult to imagine, given the current environment, how that track record would perform or would look like if it would have been confronted with today's environment. Let alone, of course, that someone can predict how the future will look like in terms of the market. Sure. So it becomes a very, of course, it's illustrative of what people can achieve and what they have achieved before, but that's more or less where it ends. And I'm more of the school who looks at the track record and say, well, that's all fine and, and rosy, but 
run the current set of systems with the, the current today's employed algorithms or approaches or methods mm. on the backtested yeah. back data. See what you get there. Is it better? Is it worse? How come your 2008 is now suddenly less bad? Sure. Is improving? Well, but what's the price you're paying for that? Oh, you see, then in 2008 and 2000, excuse me, 2007 and 2006, you would make much less profits. Right. Is it worth the trouble? Right. So people react because of what happened in the recent past. Say, let's assume 2014 is for someone a bad year he's going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. If I take my own case, in 2005, we had not a great year. And people said, how come? You're trading currencies. <laughs> All these currency traders are making a lot of money. You're not. I said, well, we are day trading. There are not that many trends intraday, and that's a problem. 2004 was a great year. And then they said, wow, this is amazing what you're mm -hmm. doing. Well, we are trading something different. Mm -hmm. Although it's in the same time frame, we may be trading a different... Uh, the same instrument, we may be trading a different time frame, mm. which, of course, changes the equation completely. Mm. So if you look at a, a historical track record, be it lengthy or not, I think it's extremely useful to also look at the backtest. And if the manager is willing to provide it, say, with the current set of algorithms and trading approaches, could you show me what you would have made if you would have known five years ago what you know today mm. in terms of the systems? and run it through the database. And that's a very valid test. Yeah. And we do that all the time uh, in the research process when we try to include a potentially new trading approach. Mm -hmm. We see, well, how does it impact the historical performance? Mm -hmm. What would it uh, create as an additional return, but more importantly, in terms of additional risks, mm -hmm. when we add it to the portfolio? To what extent is it actually like a replica, even a duplicate of what we already have in a disguised shape mm. or form. Mm. So all that will show up if you do some decent uh, backtesting and, and research. I really wonder two things. First of all, how many of the large managers today are willing to share that information? That's one question I would say. And the other thing is, I've never come across really any investor who've asked for that kind of information, give me your latest test of your current configuration and I'll use that as my basis to judge what you're doing. And I think that's very interesting that that very rarely happens mm -hmm. um, because what you allow them, and that's I think what you're explaining, is that by, uh, by offering it and by the investor wanting to see it, you're, you're putting them very deep into the current research thinking. And I think that must be critical for anyone to understand with any manager that they're willing to part money with. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Luke. Um, now, the next topic really is the trading program. As I said, let's start with the uh, DPI. I think we can certainly also touch upon Kairos. I think they're both fascinating. Um, but tell me first... Um, I know you mentioned that you are a risk-averse person. <laughs> <laughs> so, and maybe that's, uh, you know, a place to start. And, and, and really just for me to ask, what's the objective of the DPI program? Okay. Well, that's, that's at the same time bringing up the, the critical issue in terms of how do we develop systems? Right. How do we trade? Well, it has to do with, of course, the person. If yeah. I try to come up with a new trading idea, it will definitely be biased by 
how what kind of risk I'm willing to tolerate, what kind of losses I'm willing to absorb, what kind of return I'm I'm shooting for, and so on. But key to all this and in everything we do is in fact volatility, because we are convinced that high volatility is not a good thing, and people know that and realize that, but they don't know necessarily to what extent it can really hurt a portfolio. And there are different things related to that, I think. If we talk about DPI, if we talk about Kairos, actually the same philosophy is behind it. And it has to do with the fact that if you have a high volatility uh, trading method, well, even if it is a winning trading system, this high volatility will actually turn this winning system into a losing system under the condition that returns are not consistent. Mm. So at the same time, it's good to say, well, if there is a lot of volatility, I like it, but then the return stream must be extremely consistent. If not, even a good system will end up losing, and it can be shown mathematically very easily. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, if you don't have what people describe as a significant sustainable edge, an alpha, as they call it, if that alpha is actually absent, well, any volatility will actually erode the investment return. And if this erosion continues for a couple of years, the drawdown will become so big, relatively speaking, that it will become very hard to overcome. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you need to do is to make sure that you don't get into this situation where the hole that has been digging is becoming so deep and so big that you can't get out of it. And that's, that has to do with the fact that how can we avoid this dangerous high volatility? And so you have to make sure that you control the risk. Because if you control the risk, you can limit your exposure and you can reduce the potential dramas that occur or that can be created by trading a system or a method in a too aggressive fashion. Mm, so the, the cornerstone of this is, of course, let's try to find something which has this, what people call, structural alpha. So this uh, sustainable edge, which is there on a recurring basis, because, and I think it, it uh, nicely fits in with your previous question, like, what are people really looking for? Are they looking to buy the track record that they have seen? No, actually, they want to know what is like a realistic estimate for the return and for the risk, what is in a way, the, the persistence, the predictability, the robustness of this trading approach. To what extent can I rely or can I be confident that the returns that are being shown here in this track record can be seen in the near future? If I invest with this manager, I give him X hundred thousand, X million, whatever, and I close my eyes for three years and I come back after three years, will the return be more or less similar to what I see here on this historical track record? or this backtest or whatever. And that is what people are actually buying. They want to know how predictable, how uh, recurring are these uh, return streams. Is this something which is spiky, very volatile? You could have a huge year and making 17% in a month and then giving back half of it in the next two weeks. Or is this someone who is making, say, between 1% and 2% on average, nevertheless will have a bad month now and then, and may see a drawdown of 5 or 10%, whatever, but so that they get a realistic feel for what kind of risks and returns are available. 
let me um, let me ask you this now the way i see the investment universe over time has been that there's been lots of strategies that have claimed to be very stable and they have indeed looked very stable then suddenly one day they get completely wiped out uh, because what they uh, were doing had some kind of weakness we all remember long-term capital and so on and so forth now then on the other side we have the traditional cta's trend followers who have been over time very profitable but they have not been able to take the volatility out of that return so you get the profits but you also get the volatility now what you're suggesting is the best of both worlds where you get predictable returns good returns but without the volatility so the question of course is how do you do that well, it has to be with what I described earlier as the sustainable edge. Yeah, but so, that's, to, yeah. so how do we get that sustainable edge? Well, it is at the same time extremely difficult to find it. But once you call it, found it, it is relatively easy to keep it. And why is that so? Because you have to find for something which is really there on a structural basis. Now, you can say, well... I can dream up a lot of situations or patterns which have been available in the market, say, till uh, 2008, and then they went away overnight. And that's true. But what you have to do is, first of all, do enough research so that you can try to reveal these kind of potential structural inefficiencies, which you then can try to exploit. But before you go to the, say, exploiting part, you then have to do some very statistical examination and see to what extent is this potential alpha, this potential structural inefficiency really robust. In other words, can we do some statistical testing to find that this is really recurrent, it is indeed robust, it is there through the years, be it not every single month, and if it's not there, what's going to be the negative impact? When you talk about it like that, um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Scott Foster of Dominion a few weeks back, where he's also uh, in the short-term space. And what he was explaining was that what they look for is universal truth, things that simply don't change over time. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want to explore. Is that the same thing you're trying to say here, that you're looking for something that is so fundamental that it will simply continue to work? Absolutely. So that's, uh, I think, a very good summary. So you're looking for some patterns which are like repetitive to a certain extent, which will not be there every week, definitely not every day, but you can more or less count on it, I should say, that on a regular basis across a nice spectrum of markets, they will pop up here and there. If I take an example, we have some uh, trading systems which have been tested and developed for a specific market. And in the process of trying to come up with a trading strategy, say, for the S&P, to name just one, mm -hmm. we do something very weird. And people say, well, why are you testing it on, say, the uh, T-bonds? Mm. Why are you testing it on Euro-Dollar? Why are you even testing it on Dollar-Yen? It has nothing to do with S&P. And that's true. But you have to remember that the, the nature of, of the beast can change over time. And I gave the example earlier with the Swiss franc, which, is, which has been trading extremely uh, predictable to a certain extent up until a couple of years ago. And then the advantages went away. Why? Because 
the nature of that market changed. So if you test something and you test it in such a thorough way that you end up with something which is definitely nearly by definition suboptimal, but still acceptable and extremely robust, then you're onto something which has some decent potential. If you make the error, what I think a lot of people are trying to shoot for, like trying to find the so-called holy grail, the ultimate combination of, say, two moving averages, which were great in 2013 and maybe in 2008, but not in the other years, you're actually asking for trouble. So you don't really need to shoot for the optimal solution for the most stable solution. So you need more robustness than like optimal return and minimal risk. That's not the way to go. Because what you do, you will be optimizing for like a peak in the curve. And this curve, as we all know, it's a jagged curve. So it's not like a very smooth um, curve from the mathematical textbooks, which is going up, makes a peak, and then gradually slopes down again. No, it's with a lot of what they call local maxima, local minima, a lot of tops and bottoms and drawdowns and valleys and tops. So it is very dangerous to walk that slope, to walk that line. So you can't really say, well, I'm going to sit at a peak because if you drop off, you will fall off very deeply and very hard. So if you're rather on a plateau, which is not the same level of optimal return, nor the level of minimal risk, but you will be having a more stable, a more balanced uh, location than if you would be at one of these extremes. And that's actually what people should look for, traders should look for, and also investors should look for. They shouldn't be hunting for, I think, the, the manager was making the highest return this year and then hoping that he's going to be again the highest return because we all know that <laughs> returns are not very persistent, not are the performances of the managers. But you need to find some kind of stability where you say, well, I know with this manager, my risk-adjusted return is going to be in that ballpark. It's not going to be extremely high. It's not going to be extremely low. We know it's going to be probably in that confidence interval. And then you have a better, I think, uh, probability of reaching your objective in terms of what you were hoping for in terms of risk and return. <clears throat> let, me, um, let me try and... And, and, and give you a real uh, life example. And, and I want to hear sort of your feedback because I think there are a lot of uh, traders and investors out there who uh, probably have similar experiences. Now, we've done a lot of uh, research uh, in, in, in the strategies that, uh, that I've been involved in. And some of it has been in the relatively short-term space. And all I can say is that the research were very robust and uh, no optimization, Lots of different markets, and uh, certainly tested across you know different uh, different markets as you suggested, and all the numbers going back you know fifteen twenty years looked really robust. Then comes along two thousand and ten, eleven, twelve. I don't remember exactly when it is, but there is a time in that period, and thirteen in particular, uh, as far as I recall, where the performance really changes. Mm -hmm. 
Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.